lives, you know. Yeah, I think you you best slow down just a little bit. No, slow down in uh, your travel. Maybe, of course, you're also known for the lead foot. You drive oh, fast. Yeah, Where no, I, huh? I've I've ridden shotgun with you. It's it's a scary <laughs> proposition. <laughs> Did we tow a car to rabbits? Anyway, yeah, we did. Yeah, I was on the tow rope. I was in the Volkswagen behind you, and you were going along like you had nothing on the back. And I'm trying to keep that thing on the road, and you're oblivious. That was before and you could cell phone anybody, or you're supposed to be my brake. You know that. I'm screaming. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we go back a ways. Talk about how you came to the res. I we we both came as Vista volunteers. You. Tell your story. Well, I I disagree with that. We didn't really come as just volunteers. We came as um, Canada uh, in a master's degree program with the University of Colorado. With, Although, yeah, I think I mean with that, a I Vista back, <laughs> right? It, it was they ended up using Vista as a support mechanism, and it, it was a pilot project. So. Let me, I'm getting ahead of myself here. I was a, a student at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And it was, um, this is the spring of 1970. It was a fairly tumultuous time. Yeah. Um, in particular, there was an invasion of Cambodia. But they had a protest in, in uh, at Boulder, Colorado, at University of Colorado. And, and they actually called off classes and basically shut down the semester. You could finish independent study the rest of the semester. And anyway, during that time, there was a professor. You remember him, Leonard Pinto. Of course. And uh, he said, you know, instead of being out here protesting, you could be with a group of students who are already on Pine Ridge Reservation, working on their master's degree, but also being involved in community development. And that. So he brought that up in in May of 1970, and a month later, I was on Pine Ridge. I had uh, jumped from the University of Colorado on campus in Boulder to Pine Ridge Reservation in Southwest and South Dakota, not only to get a master's degree in sociology, but to you know jump in, uh, be involved in community development, that, and then work on your degree. So that's how I got there. Um, I came to wounded, ended up in wounded knee. And it was to be a, for a year or two. That was back in 1970. It's, yeah. what is it, 2023? 53, 53 years, years, man. Years. In Wounded yeah. Knee. Yeah. Still still there. So you were so, you were in Wounded Knee during the occupation. Okay. I was. What was your role there then? Well, I, the, the program that we had, it was, you know, uh, master's degree program university of colorado had morphed in, in that was in 69 and 70 and then in 71 it formalized it and it called university year for action right and so in 71 it became university year for action and and so i was part of the administrative structure of that so in 73 that's i was the field supervisor for that it had 15 students working on a master's degree and 30 students working on a bachelor's degree. Most of the 30 students were local people, members of the tribe who were working on their bachelor's degree. And there were 15 of us working on a master's degree. That was in 71. So by 73, we we're still in that program. Well, still doing. we got the call. 
I was in Vista as well on, on the other end of the reservation. And when Wounded Knee became occupied, we got the word from the Vista office to to pack up and go to a motel in Rapid City that they wanted us out of the community. And that didn't set well with any of us since we were our original goal was to try to become part of the community and make significant change. And for us to load up and leave would have betrayed the whole, um, basically the value of the program. Exactly. So I, I, I missed that memo. I didn't get that memo. <laughs> and, and, I, yeah, and, a few of us didn't. And, and actually on the night that wounded knees started, this is like February, uh, I want to say 24th. The caravan came into Wounded Knee. I I wasn't there. I was down in Gordon, Nebraska, bowling. It was my bowling night, <laughs> <laughs> and and I was calling back to the Rets to Wounded Knee, and they were telling me that something was going on. And I, so I was with a couple from Wounded Knee, and we jumped. We finished and jumped in the car, and drove back to Wounded Knee, but we couldn't get to Wounded Knee. There were roadblocks at, at on the south entrance to Wounded Knee. We went around to the east entrance roadblock. We went to the north entrance roadblock. Now, who was we the finally, who are who are manning the roadblocks? Clarify that. The roadblocks are manned by either tribal police or U.S. marshals, federal. Wounded Knee started. There was in the fall of fall of seventy two. This is Nixon was running for re-election, and there was to call the Trail of Broken Treaties that started in. California and went all the way across the country to Washington D.C. and they arrived there. That was a carav- There was a caravan of of Indian people who descended on Washington D.C. Yes, yes, and they actually took over the Bureau of Indian Affairs building in D.C. Right. So it was a huge from Indian country perspective. It was huge, all the way to D.C. and then actually take over the Bureau of Indian Affairs building which was a symbol of a lot of things. Um, and they negotiated a settlement and they offered some money and some help assistance home. And, and the caravan people felt it was a, a win. They'd won and they'd made a point and they'd gotten visibility and got some of their messages across. So on their way back, there was a series of celebrations on the way back, they stopped in different cities and communities and that and celebrated. And they were coming to Pine Ridge to do the same thing. The tribal president at the time was totally against that and said, over my dead body, will you have a celebration here in Pine Ridge? The tribal so, president was Dick Wilson at the time. Dick Wilson, yes. And um, there was a federal presence then because of that. There were sandbags on the BIA building that were concerned about, uh, you know, AIM coming back from Washington and celebrating or taking over a building in, in Pine Ridge. And that. so it was kind of a, an armed camp and tensions were very high. And explain, explain why, uh, why Wounded Knee became the locus. Well, I mean, there are historic reasons, certainly. There of course, a, the massacre. 1890. When you had the massacre of up to three hundred men, women, and children in Wounded Knee, and, and the, there's a mass grave there um, of many people who were killed at the Wounded Knee massacre. 
Um, so that's one point. Um, another one had been there was a a trading post in Wounded Knee that was, you know, less I'm than gonna, helpful. To well, the... I'm going to be um, devil's advocate here in that it's really hard to be have a trading post or a store on the reservation where people who are struggling to get by, you know, and, and you were in that you're caught in the middle. You're caught in the middle between community who had needs and didn't always have the resources and you had food and groceries and things like that. And so it was a struggle. The storekeeper was always in the middle. I mean, they were, you know, there and people didn't always have enough to get by. So they would extend credit. And in those times, like in that situation, the post office was in the store and the postmaster was one of the store owners. So they had control over the mail. And so you'd give credit to people. And then when their checks came in, in the mail, then they could hold the check or not, or cash the check and take out, you know, what was owed that had been given on credit. So yeah, they were opening people's mail and saying, here, you need to sign this. I want my money back. And yeah, you can, it's not your bill, but you can settle up with your aunt or whoever it was that owed the. So well, not yeah, only I'm, that, but there was all there was also a plan for uh, the trading post folks had a plan to develop a mo- monument that was fairly garish, you know, as a tourist attraction. That, uh, that was, yeah, they had proposed an obelisk to be at the wounded knee gravesite, massacre gravesite. Right without um, that, the. the uh, Native folks had no involvement in that. It was going to be a, a tourist attraction, which I think yeah. also rankled the folks who were coming from in this caravan. Another issue that came up was that one of the ceremonies that had survived over so many years of being on the reservation was the Sundance. It had been banned, you know, in the beginning of the reservation, but it had survived. So the owners of the store had a Sundance at Wounded Knee. At that time, mm-hmm. there was only one Sundance on Pine Ridge Reservation. It was a, coordinated by the tribe and with working with the medicine, but there was only one. They put a Sundance on at Wounded Knee and filmed it. And I remember going to a community meeting at the store where they showed the film of the Sundance. And what they were doing was using the Sundance as a advertising tool to bring tourists and people to Wounded Knee. Well, that just didn't sit right. Well, that's a sacrilege. You know, folks from other religions can relate, I would think, to someone coming in and co-opting your religion for personal gain. The money changers in the temple comes to mind. That was another element of why they chose Wounded Knee. Then there had been a problem in the town south of Wounded Knee in, in Gordon, Nebraska, just across the state line and down in Gordon, where a um, a person who was kind of a street person ended up being beat up and found dead in an abandoned car. And that obviously increased the tensions in the whole area. So Wounded Knee ended up being the focal point. And whether or not, there's some always, even so many years later, a disagreement about whether or not 
they intended to take over the town. The caravan came into Wounded Knee and they ended up, you know, they ended up nominally taking hostages, people who were in the store, you know, the guy who ran the museum there, his family, and there were different people. There, there were about, I think, 11 or 12 people that were taken. I use quotation marks, hostages. I mean, they weren't, is yes and no. But it ended up being a confrontation, and, and the next morning, you know, the roadblocks were up all around the, uh, at every direction. And um, two, I remember two Air Force jets from the local, uh, the Air Force base outside of Rapid City flew over Wounded Knee. Remember them coming over really low. You know, they were photographing, you know, and, and taking pictures of what was going on. But, but it was a surreal thing. I mean, yeah. people had taken over the store. People had loaded up grocery carts and were rolling them from the store down to the community. It was just a, an insane deal. So that night I came back. We couldn't couldn't um, get into Wounded Knee. So we basically parked in the middle of the field and walked into Wounded Knee. And uh, we were there. It continued. It, for a while there, you could go in and out. You go through the roadblock, go out of Wounded Knee, and then come back in, and that, and then. But after a week, they cut that off and said either you're in or you're out. So we were still in. We stayed in. That's where my home was. I mean, I, we still had all these volunteers and people across the reservation. Um, and three weeks later, one of the volunteers, her name was Alice Dobbins. She was originally from. Um, St. Louis, and she was a student at the University of Colorado, and then part of this program, and she was in Wounded Knee, and she had chosen to stay. I had stayed, so she said, I'm going to stay, so she stayed, but three weeks later, <laughs> we, I get a knock on the door, and there was one of the professors from the University of Colorado and a couple of the students and volunteers who had walked in to say her mother, Alice's mother, was raised in Holy Cane all over the country. From St. Louis to Boulder, Colorado to Washington D.C., wanting to know the, about the safety of her daughter with all these renegades and wounded knee. Oh yeah! So they to get her to take her out. You know, they tried to go through the roadblock and they wouldn't let them in or out. So they parked in the middle of the field and walked in to to get us to get Alice. And Alice wouldn't leave unless I left too. So I said, okay. So we'll walk out. And I told people, keep the coffee pot on. I'll be back tonight. Um, it took me a couple of days because as we walked out, as we got to the car, from the car, you could see the roadblock on the Manderson Road. You could see the roadblock. And if you, we could see it, they could see us. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. as we got to the car, two Jeeps came up over the hill with these big U.S. Marshals on it, in it, and they arrested us. They took us to the roadblock, and then FBI took us to Pine Ridge, to the Pine Ridge Jail. And let me give you a word of advice. Never, ever um, spend a night in the drunk tank oh. in Pine Ridge, especially if you're sober. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the jail was full, so oh, the Lord. ended up in the drunk tank. So we were in the drunk tank. And uh, the next morning, um, they did some negotiation. When they, they marched us out to a bus to take us to Rapid City, the Pennington County Jail. In the end, Sunday morning, we were charged with obstruction of a federal officer during the time of a 
civil disorder. Five years in jail and five thousand dollar fine. They let us out on personal recognizance, and uh, and so we got out that Sunday. And that Sunday night, I walked back into Wounded Knee. Um, the, the supposedly it had been over. They'd had a truce and called a truce in the middle of that weekend, but by the next morning, by that Sunday, it was back on again. So I dropped, got dropped off about seven miles east of Wounded Knee and walked back into Wounded Knee. I got to the road, the road that goes north towards Porcupine, and I got on the road and started walking towards the central part of Wounded Knee, and I made noise because I didn't want any problems. Right. I didn't want to shoot me. <laughs> yeah. The road. yeah, things were getting pretty skittish about then. Yeah, I got a creek where they the bridge had been burned out, and there was a vehicle in the, the bottom of the creek. And I got there, and a guy on the other side said, "Halt! Who goes there?" And I told him who I was, and I just wanted to go home. And said, "Well, if you come over here, you'll be a prisoner of the Oglalakota Nation, independent Oglalakota Nation." <laughs> I said, "I don't care. I just want to go home." <laughs> so I crossed over the vehicle and under, over to the other side and he put a rifle in my back and he walked me to the church. That was kind of the headquarters of the occupation. Right. And that's the church they gave me a ride home. Could I was from Wounded I lived in Wounded Knee, so they just gave me a ride home. And I stayed there for another couple of weeks after that. And then we ended up, because we thought it was going to be over with, we ended up walking out and ended up going 71 days. Wow. So, but that, that was, uh, that was wounded in 1973. Well, and you've made your life there. You have three kids who are natives. Your wife was a native. She's a member of the tribe. Yep. So the three, my three kids are all tribal members. They're grown adults now. All have kids. I'm a grandpa now. I have six grandchildren. So, um, yeah. Reflect on that a little bit, Tom. Why, why did you, what brought, I mean, I know college brought you there in the first place, but what was it that, what is it that has kept you there from well, emotionally? You know, I, I didn't know, I didn't know a soul when I came in 1970, when I drove to Pine Ridge in June of 1970. I didn't know anybody. I was joining a program, but I didn't know any of them either. I didn't know you. I didn't know anybody. You guys had been there since the fall of 69. That's when you guys came in the fall of 69. Yeah, you were supposed to be my roommate out in Wombly, and I went, nah, I don't. I, I just had a roommate, and I was, I wish <laughs> I, I'd, I wish I'd uh, thought differently about that, but that's the way I that rolled. Know. Yeah, I didn't know that because I got there and I ended up, I stayed three weeks with the director in Porcupine and then a couple of weeks out to Oglala and then a week in Red Cloud Community with Jim Simmons and Red Cloud Community and then out to Rocky Ford <coughs> and out to Kyle and then out to Wombley. And then finally they said they, they want you to stay in Wounded Knee. So in September of 70, I moved into Wounded Knee. They said, there's, um, there's the Vista house up there. There's an old cannery kitchen. The top part, the top part um, uh, had, uh, excuse me. The top part had, uh, uh, windows were out. 
but the basement was okay. So, you know, I'm a mainstream American society kind of guy. You know, <laughs> you need heat, you turn on the thermostat, you know, you need water. You uh, yeah. But, I mean, you take things for granted, you know. Yeah, well, we all got a dose of that, I'll tell you. It had electricity, but didn't have any water, and you had to figure out heat. I went outside and dug an outhouse hole out behind the place, you know, and got an outhouse and hooked yeah. up a sink with a on a rack with a pail underneath. I mean, so you just figured it out. Well, and, and we were we were on the Vista volunteers up there to help make social change for Indian people, and they kept us alive. We were. We were we had no idea what we were doing. Exactly. <laughs> Sometimes I picture an older Lakota man sitting on a hill in a rocking chair watching. That was their entertainment. Uh -huh. And spin or hustle around and spin circles and it was their entertainment. Well, I, I imagine I imagined that the people would gather and tell Vista stories. You don't you won't believe what they did yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so true. But, you know, it was a different life. I had left Boulder, University of Colorado, Boulder, you know, outside of Denver. Um, I, I was ready. I was ready to get out of there, get out of Boulder and uh, try something else. And I came to Pine Ridge and um, I came to enjoy, I mean, it's wide open spaces. It was, uh, to me, a beautiful country, beautiful people. Yeah. And, and. I had things to do, things I'd never done or thought about doing and had an opportunity to do. Um, uh, I got involved in teaching for the college. Uh, then it was called Lakota Higher Education Center, so I volunteered to teach a college class. Um, yes. I, you know, I got involved in the curriculum development. We had these little learning centers in each community where we did a learning center for kids, environmentally oriented in that. You know, we did those. Yeah, I'm pretty proud of the educational kind of work that we that we were able to do there, and you know we we kind of helped in our own way to get uh, the footing for Ogallala Lakota College teaching, you know, GED and basic skills. Um, and the college started in 1970. It was actually then chartered by the tribe in 1971, and it too this year had its 50th graduation ceremonies. Oh, oh, time it's turned out. You know, all kinds of associate degrees, bachelor's degrees, and it has a, had a master's degree program for the last quite a few years. So <clears throat> it's had an impact, impact on the community. And uh, and that's, you know, well, let's, that's... Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, that's... Well, let's take it full circle. Impact on the community, Keeley Radio. You know, it was this dream after wounded knee, then wounded knee occupation. Some of the things to to bring people together and uh, unite the the folks on the res around their culture. Talk about that some. How from you've been at it for forty plus years with with a radio station. What do you think? Well, we talked just uh, talk social change. What do you think the social change has been for? Keeley Radio. Well, I mean, one of the things I've done is connected people from one end of the reservation to the other. I said it's a 50 by 100 mile geography. <coughs> and so it allowed people in Slim Buttes 
in the far southwestern corner to relate and to connect with people. On the radio, you hear you'll hear a birthday, you know, honoring. You'll hear somebody who graduated an honoring song for them. So, so you're connected. Um, uh, every day you can hear Lakota songs on the radio. Every day you can hear Lakota language on the radio. I'd like to see more Lakota language on the radio and to be used in a, in a, in a more in that way. But you hear it. So, and it's, and it, but it, the station has been involved in celebrating, celebrating being Lakota, the language, the music, the culture, and the way of life. That's what it is. The DJs are all Lakota, and it's a celebration of being Lakota. And, and I think that's really important. I mean, for years in South Dakota, uh, Lakota people were treated as second-class citizens. And sometimes, I mean, even today, it continues to today. You know, the, yes. they had a uh, U.S. Civil Rights Commission hearing 30 years ago in Rapid City. And all of the anecdotal testimony that happened about how people were treated off the reservation in Rapid City or by the South Dakota Highway Patrol um, and treated in, in ways that were as second-class citizens, as Native Americans. You know, South Dakota was the wild, wild west. You yes. know, you had, it was part of Manifest Destiny. You, you know, the, the, the Lakotas had signed treaties in 1851 and 1868 with the federal government, a treaty that was signed by both the tribe and the federal government, a treaty, a law of the land. And yet in uh, when they found gold in the Black Hills, which was Lakota land, um, settlers streamed in there looking for gold. And, and the led, government did. Led by George Armstrong Custer. Yeah. Sure. So that mentality, that pioneer mentality has continued and, and that racism has continued. We had a governor of South Dakota who came and actually came and spoke at the inauguration of a tribal president, Harold Salway. He became a tribal president in 1990. And the governor of South Dakota came and spoke at his inauguration ceremonies. It was in Allen, an American Horse School, and he, he talked about a, not only a year of reconciliation, a century of reconciliation. We need we need to bridge this gap between Lakota people and other people in the state. We need to bridge that gap. We need to connect. We need to better understand each other's cultures and mores and what they hold to be important and value. We need to understand each other better. We live in the same state, in the same land. We share this life. We need to figure out how to work together. That was his message. He came. And uh, I thought that was really good. That was yeah. really special. He died a short time later in a, car, in a plane crash. Him and his staff died in a plane crash. That was George Mickelson. Was him. That was the governor of South Dakota. So, so it's been, you know, it's been that kind of give and take over the years. And, you know, the, this Lakota Nation Invitational Tournament in Rapid City that we broadcast, that is part of it. I mean, because there's been non-Indian teams that are part of that. And they've shared in special events and activities as part of Lakota Nation. There's a, they've traditionally done a, if somebody's been hooked up with the 
tournament and been involved in the tournament or and passed away there had they've held a wiping a tear ceremony i can remember one in particular one from custer a young man who was custer south custer south dakota south dakota their team custer wildcats was part of lakota nation for a long time and he was he'd been a junior um he was going to be a senior his girlfriend had been a senior played volleyball uh lakota nation invitation volleyball Anyway, they got they got in a wreck. They died. They got in this bad storm east South Dakota, a rainstorm that they had, some guy crossed the median and head on collision and killed them both. That year at Lakota Nation, they held a, a wiping a tear ceremony, something that's certainly not part of non-native culture, part of Lakota culture, but it was a way to uh, provide support to the family of those two to show them that they were there for them and were supporting them and part of their grief and to be there for support. And it was something that kind of crossed the two cultures and way of life. And, and so that's what's happened, you know, continues to happen as we try and connect the two cultures. Are there struggles? Oh yeah, absolutely. There are struggles still. I mean, just a few years ago, a hotel owner in Rapid City, There'd been a brouhaha in the hotel and a person was killed in the hotel and it involved Lakota people that were involved. And she came out and said, you know, we can't tell a good Indian from a bad Indian. So we're going to exclude and not allow any native people to stay either at the hotel or to be, they have a bar, they're cheers there. They won't be allowed. And, I mean, this is in the Jeez. 20%, you know, and, and there was, <sighs> you know, walks and, and protests and, 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 and suit was filed and, and the federal government filed charges against them too. Um, and so it still continues, but it's ongoing process. What, what, so, go ahead. No, go ahead. So just given what you've just said, how do you, how do you stay positive and stay in the game? I mean, uh, your middle name seems to be persistent, persistence. You, well, you get you up know, every day and look at the, at the bright side, but you've dealt with some real challenges in I, your I, life. I have, um, I can remember a time in Wounded Knee. There's a lower housing in Wounded Knee. I lived there for a while. Um, and it was at the end of the day, the sun was going down and there'd been cloud cover you know how the sun gets there in between the cloud cover and the horizon. And there is this golden glow. Yeah. And I was standing at the north end of the lower housing. And I looked down in there and there were all these kids, anywhere from two to eight or nine or 10 years old. They were teaming all around that whole street, kids all over. And I went, you know, there's the future. There's the future right there. Every one of those kids has the potential to change the world. And, but they have to be, there has to be a support system for them. They have to have a family and support and be nurtured and loved. And, and, and that has to happen. And that's a every day, day in, day out happening that doesn't always happen. I mean, we struggle. There's poverty, there's, you know, 
very low per capita income, struggle with unemployment, struggle with problems inherent to that with alcohol and drug abuse and on and on. So there's no end of work that needs to be done. Yeah. And are there, there are there bright stories? Absolutely. There's fantastic success stories. There's problems. I mean, gun violence, you know, a recent council meeting, uh, the Congressman Jesse Johnson, who's the lone Congressman from South Dakota was there at the council meeting to address the council and then to listen to the council and the councilman up at they let loose on him and said look with indian health service doesn't have enough money we don't get enough services we're not getting a good health care it was guaranteed by the treaty yeah the federal treaty. prisoners get better health care than here at indian health service why is that um they they talked about the rise of gun violence and methamphetamine on the reservation and, and talk about the problems that it dealt with so um what has kept me there? It's like well, Coach College and Keeley Radio. I mean, here are institutions that have grown up and have an impact on the community, and that you know need to continue. You know, yes. A young man who I knew, he was a colleague of my kids, and went to school and played basketball with my youngest son. He today, um, he graduated, ended up going to college. He got his degree, got his master's degree. He's been working at the college. He started a business two years ago, a lawn mowing business. And it's grown to, um, it's grown incredibly. And then from that, it, it he, uh, snow removal business. And now he has a food truck. And so, wow. and so he, you know, he started this business and, and, those are the opportunities. There's incredible amount of opportunities for people who are willing to, you know, and he, he went through the, he went to the, he went, graduated from Red Cloud High School. He, he graduated, he went to the college, Ogala Coast College, he got his degree, and then he got his master's degree. And now he's leaving the college because he's an entrepreneur. He started three businesses and he's employing people, you know, and, and there's the success story. So, the challenges are there, whether they're there on Pine Ridge or Rapid City or Denver. Everyday challenges are there. You have people trying to meet those challenges. Well, thanks for uh, all that you've done to get up every day and try to make a difference, Tom. Right now, I just say I'm like an old plow horse. I just keep plugging away. Just keep plugging away. <laughs>